This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I've been reading Lori Moore for, well, a while. And every single book has been an absolute delight for me, and I'm so happy she's here because this new book, I Am Homeless, If This Is Not My Home, we're going to dance around some of this book, and I'm smiling like a madwoman as I think about it. Um, it is 192 very tight pages. It's two storylines. It is really terrific character. I love these characters. I love Elizabeth. I love Finn. I love Lily, Max, all of them. And then we have an unnamed actor that we're going to get to as well. But Lori, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. It's such a pleasure to see you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's very, it's very fun to be here. So I am homeless. If This Is Not My Home is your first book in a bit. I mean, it's been a while. When did you start working on this new book? I feel like you've been hinting at it sort of over the last few years saying, well, I'm working on this thing. <laughs> I'm working on this. Working on this weird thing. <laughs> um, well, and I, did, and I did research for it at the Coleman Center in New York. I had a mm-hmm. fellowship uh, right. 2017, 2018, I think that was. Mm-hmm. I had begun a little bit of it before, but I needed... I needed time to do it. So the two storylines, we've got this fellow called Finn who's driven in from the Midwest to the Bronx. His brother is in hospice and he's come specifically to see his brother. And Finn also has, I guess we call her former girlfriend, Lily. I guess it's, it's a former girlfriend. Yeah, they they seem to have been a little broken up at this point, but they're they're kind of broken up. He's not, he's still very much emotionally involved. He's not over it. He's super. He's not over it. And she might not be over it either. Who knows? Well, I don't think she is either. But then we have a second storyline, though, that's set in the American South in, you know, post-Civil War, but certainly not present day. (laughs) I think there's one little sentence that gives the year away. I think it's about Mm -hmm. 1870, 1871. But, you know, around there. So we've got Elizabeth writing letters to her sister in that period. And then we have essentially Finn and Lily in the present day. How did we get these two storylines in this project? Well, that is an excellent question. And <laughs> question it's a question my editor at Kanav asked me straight off when uh-huh. I put the manuscript in. So I had to sort of explain things and I had to to redo a couple things. Both these stories were in my head and okay. and then I realized I had things in common and I knew that you could do a contemporary story with an historical one. Many, many authors have done that and there can be overlap. And I thought of Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia which uses that house, you know, dramas that are occurring centuries apart are still simultaneously within that house. And so I thought I would steal that. Apparently, apparently Tom Stoppard stole it from someone else. So I, you know, I heard him say that in an interview. So I thought, okay, well, I won't feel guilty. (laughs) I guess he think he said it was some classic thing in theater that you use the house and you have, you know, time differential with the, the two dramas that are occurring within it. So I decided that they had these stories had things in common. They had communion with the dead. They both had a kind of ne'er-do-well guy named Jack. (laughs) And they had this boarding house in common. 
and some other things. And I decided I could go back and forth and, you know, with luck, make it clear that that there are connections between these two stories. There's also, I'm going to take a second and quote you quoting Alice Munro for a second. <laughs> Something I stumbled across in the essay collection while I was prepping for the show, love never dies. And there's a lot of love in this book. There's familial love, there's sibling love, there's romantic love. There's all sorts of love in this book, right? And you write about siblings in a really cool way. It's something I noticed only when I was completing this novel, that that there's siblings in all of them. And there's also protagonists who are carried away by a slightly imaginary love in all my novels. And I didn't even realize that until I thought, well, what does that mean? And I, I just couldn't go there. But it's somehow a sense of of love as a distraction from filial bonds and duty and all of that. I have to say about the Alice Monroe quote, I can't remember which story that is in, but she has the character say, love dies all the time. You know, she responds to it. She says, that's the, that's, that's, the sort of stupid thing people think is true, but it's not. It's not. And yet, in this, in this <laughs> novel, love, it's true. Love doesn't die. <laughs> there are so many fun moments in this book. And I knew the book was coming and I got the galley and I read it cold because it had been a while since I had anything sort of super new to read from you. And the essay collection was fun. But this book is even more fun. <laughs> this book is wild, Lori Moore. This book is wild. It's so great. It's a little bonkers. Yeah, I knew it. I didn't show it to anyone when I was writing it uh, because I thought no one's going to get it. And so, I mean, I waited until I'd finished it to turn it in. And then I tinkered with it a little bit after. But I didn't, I mean, it's the first time I've written a book and not shown anyone during wow. the process. Okay. So that's when you really know you're in crazy land, that other readers are not going to get what you're doing until you have finished it. And then with luck, they will. And you've had the same agent and the same editor for every mm-hmm. single book I since have. self-help, right? I have. It's okay, so you beautiful. didn't even show them and they've known you for a really well, long I showed time. Them, I showed them once I had a draft. Okay, okay. Um, and then I did make some changes afterward. I had what I thought of as a finished draft. And then I turned that in um, and they had responses. And I made some changes. But I did, but usually I show it to a couple writer friends mm-hmm. and I say, tell me if there's something really wrong here. But I didn't. I didn't do that this time. Because there's a lot of what I consider Laurie Moore writer in this book. I mean, the dialogue is great. The humor is there. (laughs) There's so much payoff in this book. There's so much good, funny, Laurie Moore wit in this book, even though (laughs) I can't stop thinking about it. But I also can't stop laughing because you pulled it off entirely. And I know people are going to be listening to the show thinking, what is going on? And all I want to say is it's 192 pages. You can read it very quickly and you'll fly through the story. And all of the things I think of when I think of your short stories are there. The way you describe what's happening in this world and what's happening between Finn and Max and Finn and Lily 
And Elizabeth and her sister and Elizabeth and her gentleman boarder, <laughs> the actor who's staying in her, her boarding house. Yeah. I know you said this book feels really wild. And yes, I would not disagree with you. And yet, when did you decide that this was the project, that this that you were just going to commit completely to this idea? I suppose when I was at the Coleman Center, I, I, I mean, I never set out to write an historical novel. But as I did the research and as I had this other story of grief in my head, I thought these stories of grief are, are really speaking to each other in some way. Maybe all stories of grief speak to one another. And so, I mean, at the Coleman Center, I did the historical research and I did way too much research. <laughs> okay. And that's the way I just suddenly thought, oh, I want to come back as an historian in my next life. I did more research than I than I used. It was very interesting, and and you know some of the research is in there. And I wanted the back and forth between present present day, we'll say, and present day politics. Twenty sixteen, it's the election of Trump, and I thought you know the the idea of the Confederacy never dying is in both parts. So I had both both things going on. Now, I wrote them pretty much the way they appear in the book. I didn't write the letters separately and intersperse them. I really did exactly as, as, as it was to be read, which might be a little weird. Um, it's certainly not very David Mitchell of me. You gave Elizabeth a really great line, though, and talking about everything that you just mentioned. It does seem this place has been handed some moment in history that's grown fearful and impulsive about hanging on to it. And I was just kind of like, oh, hi. <laughs> and that's very early. That's early. It's possibly her second or third section in the book. And I just thought, okay, I'm in. I was already in from her first letter to her sister, but, and then we meet Finn and Max. And then I was like, oh, I'm really in. <laughs> really I need to see what's going on well that's great I'm so I'm so happy to hear you say that because when there are so many sections often people prefer one to another and and when they have to move on to another section they miss the other one or I don't know there can be preferences in any kind of bicameral narrative or even within a single narrative if there's if there's things themes, relationships that you are more attached to than others, you can think that the whole thing is, is unbalanced. But I hope it all works as an assemblage, I'll say. I wanted to know how you were going to connect everything. That's what I really needed to know. I was like, okay, I see the parallels, but I really needed to know how you were going to bring this together. There are other writers who would have brought it together in a different way, or maybe never would have come up with any of but when you brought it together, too, I was so pleased. <laughs> I figured it was either going to connect in a physical way or an emotional way. And you actually gave me both. I hope I hope. Oh, good. Thank you. I hope there's both. I mean, there is one moment where Elizabeth, when she's handing over the, the dead body, we'll say mm -hmm. that there's a couple of dead bodies in the. There are. <laughs> you know? oh, yes, there are. <laughs> She says, well, it's a bit of a custom in these parts to drive around the countryside with a dead body in, <laughs> in your vehicle. Of course, 
as I lay dying is the reference point there. And I have a little quote at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I use a quote as an epigraph from Faulkner's as I lay dying. So there in both sections, there is that, that driving around with someone who may or may not be dead, may or may not be who you think they are. So there's that parallel. There is. And I'm going to, Go back and, and this was an excuse to sort of jump back into some of my favorite Laurie Moore stories. And real estate is one of those stories from Birds of America. And if you haven't read the story, I'm just going to say go read it. You can either find it in Birds of America or it's in the Collected Stories, which was reissued in 2020 with a fabulous introduction by Lauren Groff. So either of those, because I'm not going to spoil the book for you, but what I am going to say is there's a description of the art of fiction and the purpose of fiction that shows up in real estate. This is the kind of thing that fiction is. It's the unlivable life, the strange room tacked onto the house, the extra moon that's circling the earth, unbeknownst to science. (laughs) I'm just like, well, yes, this is exactly what you're doing in this book. It is so much fun. And yeah, I, I did follow you down the rabbit hole and I wasn't entirely clear what was going on maybe in the first couple of sections. And then I started to put it together because the voice is so good and it matches each of the sections even though one is you know clearly historical and one is present the voice matches there's that sort of raised eyebrow to the world i think each narrator both elizabeth and finn sort of have this unreliable streak you know the idea of balancing the voice so that you're not giving more weight to one piece because the two need each other the two sections the two storylines need each other i think Yeah, I agree. Thank you for saying that. I mean, you know, not every reader will have that experience. Mm -hmm. They'll start with one voice and either prefer that or prefer the next one that comes along, but they're, but they alternate. So Mm -hmm. if you, if you keep going through the book, they're both there. Yeah. The uh, one is in first person Mm -hmm. because letters and the other Mm -hmm. is is close third tracking the hapless Finn. I was telling someone, I have I have colleagues who have, you know, after I started this book, I was very attached to these names, Finn and Lily. And two of my colleagues, poets, got dogs. One of them named Finn and the other one named Lily. And I just thought, oh, no, I can't deal with these dogs named Finn and Lily. And also write characters but I, I was too far into the novel to change the names. So now I have to go back to Nashville and, of course, you know, deal with these dogs. <laughs> and then Lily. I do want to talk about the humor, though, because I think, especially when you're writing about grief and death, humor is something that people sometimes forget. I mean, it's that valve, too, right? It's the pressure valve for any human being who's experiencing any of that. But also, I can't separate you from this very sort of dry, witty, wry, like your dialogue still just sings. And in this book too, I mean, there are a couple of moments where I was laughing out loud. Well, well, good. I, I did think of it as all very sad, but, um, and not a funny book necessarily. There's always funny things in life. You don't really even have to make them up. You just have to pay attention. They're just there. And for the dialogue for for the brothers and for Finn and Lily, I mean, they're in close quarters. 
they're in impossible circumstances and so there will be there would be tension and there would be there would be humor there's always some humor in hospice there's always some humor in in a on a car trip and that's just the way people are because everybody's trying to cheer each other up now there's also other stuff in there it's just music dialogue but it is how people speak i think I, I notice everyone being funny all the time. So I, I, do, I did want to capture that. It gets a little unfunny, maybe toward the end, but I, I, it needs that too. It needs to have a kind of... I know the moment you're talking about and that particular exchange, I think it shows a real sort of sea change in Finn. There's something he says to another person where you're like, oh, oh, but here's the thing. I know what he says and I know who he says it to. And I don't know if it's going to stick because that's one of the things about Finn where I'm like, is this going to stick? I mean, Finn's very sort of focused on Finn and his life and his interpretation of life. And I'm like, hmm, I would like to think that Finn might be able to move on, but. I'm not sure I trust him. <laughs> who, who knows? I mean, do you, does one ever move on from someone they love dying? You, sort of yes, sort of no. Right. And that's and that's what the book is. It's sort of, it's like, here's the partial way you move on. Here's the partial way you don't move on. And so it's existing in that sort of nether zone. It's also a little bit of, I mean, to the extent that Finn is a little self-absorbed, it's about his non-comprehension of her mental state, which is mystery. I mean, I think the kind of mental suffering that she has is a mystery to others. And you can never really quite get to the bottom of it, even if you love them dearly. Can't really fathom it, and he he brings his non-comprehension all the way through the book. He doesn't ever reach a. I mean, he he touches on some understandings here and there, but mostly he's got his rageful non-comprehension that is driving him. And so, and sometimes that's part of of the comedy and the tension and and the dialogue, and and sometimes it's just part of the sadness. I genuinely believe that we experience life sort of in a balance of emotions, right? Like you can't have joy if you don't have sadness because you have nothing to compare it to. And that's, you know, when I'm reading your work, really specifically the stories, but certainly the new novel, certainly I look to you to be able to raise an eyebrow at stuff where I know some people might not have the same response that I'm having, but there's an honesty to what you're saying and how you're saying it that I so appreciate. And maybe that just says I have a really black sense of humor. <laughs> well, then, it might, it might, perfect reader. <laughs> it might be my very dark sense of humor, but the idea that, you know, you have to have all of the stuff in order to have life, right? The question is, do we have the language to represent all of the stuff as we experience it? Sometimes if you just put those those different levels of language down and, and ask them to sort of smash into each other, 
you can the, the both the comedy and the tragedy occur. I actually have a gr- have great admiration for stand up, and I was I was watching Wanda Sykes's new um, special. I don't okay. know if you've seen it, and it, you know it, I don't think it's as great as her other ones. But there's a moment that just had me laughing out loud, and it's she's trying to be a guy who is going through the hot flashes of menopause. While he, she's just imagining this. She's creating this. <laughs> while he gives the quarterly earnings report in a in a company meeting, <laughs> so it's it's so it's like he's got the PowerPoint figures and the graphs and all and the corporate language going on at the same time. She's made up a language for male menopause that he's also suffering from, and so the collision of those two rhetorical levels. Yeah. It's what's so funny. And she does that. She did that very, very well. Mm-hmm. I just had great admiration for that. But that's and so that's also sometimes the definition of of surrealism mm-hmm. to to completely disparate things sort of suddenly together. But it certainly is the definition of humor. Something's out of context and smashing into something else. That's this book has a lot of that. <laughs> oh, it does. It's so satisfying. <laughs> I'm also just thinking there's a twist that pops in the letters when you realize something that Elizabeth has been withholding and uh, it does not deal with the gentleman border or the gentleman actor, excuse me. And it just, I was laughing so hard. I almost felt, I was like, of course, this makes a ton of sense and it has something to do with her sister. But there's a lot of that kind of, what do we do with our secrets? How do our secrets define us? How do we put our secrets out into the world or not? I want to go back to Lauren Groff for a second. She, as I said, had written this wonderful introduction to the collected stories. And she is great. And she is also a former student of yours as Madison, as as was Emma Straub, which I love the idea that there's a direct lineage between (laughs) you and two of my favorite women on the planet. One of the things Lauren talks about in that introduction that anyone who has read your work knows is just this, there's this Lori Moore voice that really cannot be imitated, right? Like it's, it's so wildly unique. It seems like you've had it all along though. It feels like we, we start with self-help and here we, and I can see the through line and I can see sort of this raised eyebrow, right? That you have for all of us. That's great. I, I, you know, I, I think a writer might be the last to know about about the through line between their work because to get work written, you have to feel that it's new. You have to feel, oh, this is something I haven't done before, and so that's what I had to feel with every single thing that I wrote. Like this is new and different. This is, and Lauren writes that way. You know, I just yeah. I just spent time with Lauren in Berlin. I was at the American Academy in Berlin with her. We were fellows together. It was really fun. She was there with her beautiful family and it was just really nice. So there may be certain aspects of style in the sentences. There's still, you're writing to your ear. You know, you're writing probably to the same ear, even though you think you're doing something that you've never done before, that inner ear is still the, probably the same inner ear. It may be modified as you go through life a little, but mm-hmm. the musicality, the sense of rhythm is probably 
just there always. And if you write at all in a poetic way or in the first person, if you're worried about how a humorous line has to scan, you're writing to the to that inner ear for its rhythms and its sound. So the sound of a book, the sound of a story, um, those are very, very key. And even though you may feel you're writing a brand new book, sound may be reporting in to the same inner ear that the author has. I hope there are differences among the books. And I, I, I always hope that I've gotten better, but, you know, I probably have just gotten different a little bit in terms of subject matter and all of that. But you have to feel that as you, as you go through life as a writer. You have to feel this next book is new. This next book is different. And you have to hope that your that your best work is ahead of you. I still think that at my old age, I think, oh, my best work is still ahead. Hang on for five more years. I'll have another book. <laughs> oh, please. I can be patient. Oh, I can be. Uh, no, no, no. I can be totally patient. And I have a subscription to the New York Review. So I'm good. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> I can hold on. <laughs> I'll be fine. But I am, I, I'm just thinking about what you said just now, that there are certain elements that I know I'm going to get. And I say this even in regards to like your television criticism, like you've written about The Wire and you've written about True Detective and you've written about Friday Night Lights. And even there, I know I'm reading a piece by you, but I was never really expecting you to write about television, though I'm glad you did. I never expected. Really? To write. Okay. It, it was a very weird journey. Because I wasn't really a television person. I just happened to spend a summer watching The Wire. Which is great. I, I mean, <laughs> I love really The Wire. And I and then I went to find things that were written about it. You mm-hmm. know, this is the this is what criticism is useful for. Right. That's why the New York Times turned so much so much writing over to succession. Yeah. People wanted to discuss it after they'd seen it. I think they turned a little too much. Too many column inches mm. over to succession, but whatever. But I could find nothing about The Wire. Nothing in the New York Times. Nothing. And this was years later. A little bit in London. The London mm-hmm. Bank was nothing in the New Yorker. The New Yorker had never reviewed it. And I just thought, that is really crazy. So I asked Bob Silvers if I could do it. And he said, sure. And then he started to hand me TV pieces. Right. Thought, wow, am I becoming a TV reviewer? This will be a nice gig in my old age, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I started to write about these really interesting shows. And also quite novelistic in the way they deal with time exactly. and exactly. and arcs and all of that. I mean, they really... And the, photo- the ph- cinematography on all of them, the photography yeah. and the acting, those two things made them so unlike the television that I grew up with, to the extent that I grew up with television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm everybody does to some extent didn't look like a film did it look like tv and suddenly there's this new age of television where the television doesn't look like tv it looks like a film and the actors were fantastic in all of these shows and you know the writing in a sense was the least of it i hate to say that because it sounds like i'm not in solidarity with the writer's strike but I, i am i am (laughs) but the actors are you know and the photography on the shows that I wrote about were fantastic 
Well, I think, too, story finds so many different roots to us, right? I think that there are times where even narrative, and you've been a political novelist for quite some time. I mean, if you think about it, right, domestic dramas are political. I mean, I say this all the time, and one of the examples I use is The Hours by Michael Cunningham. There's that first section of the book Mm -hmm. where you know, the young man's mother is basically having a meltdown um, in her kitchen while she bakes him a cake. And, but as a synopsis for like the entire 1950s and being a woman and being a married woman, especially Mm -hmm. in the suburbs, like it's just, it is a wildly political piece. Mm -hmm. And no one ever really thinks about that. They just kind of think about it as someone's mommy having a meltdown in the kitchen while she bakes a cake. And I'm like, well, actually, right. Like, (laughs) let's, talk about what this really means. And I think it's easy for us still as a culture, which is really frustrating to say, well, here's this television work and here's this other stuff and look at how inherently political it all is. And I'm like, well, the stuff that you're dismissing as a domestic drama out of hand is actually covering class and money. and All all of the stuff that Succession is doing with like fancy sweatshirts and private planes novels have been doing for quite a long time just with different terrain right right did you watch succession i tried (laughs) the coverage has been fascinating i've actually been reading a lot of the coverage just because it's fascinating but at the same time i'm kind of like i puzzle you don't have enough time no what i wish it puzzled me more I don't remember a show being covered in in a news yeah. major national newspaper the way this has been covered. I thought it was very funny when the LA Times ran an obituary for the father. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought that was a great idea. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> that's a way to get people to read the newspaper again. And I'm like, I would just hope that some of the folks who are watching Succession realize that, you know, there are everyday true life examples of this happening all around them and maybe those are worth paying attention to too there's just less cashmere or less visible cashmere i don't really quite know how to explain it but i don't know i just get so much pleasure from books and i don't always have time to watch the things that maybe i should be following up on i think i watched maybe two episodes in the first season and i was like okay i'm good thanks i think that's all you need i think you need two i shouldn't say this but (laughs) each season that'll do That'll do, I think. I also I, ran out of I steam on billions. <laughs> I, I just, didn't ever watch that. I, I I tried and I was good very quickly. I was like, yeah. uh-huh. okay. Yeah. And, you know, all props to the teams making this stuff. I think there's a lot of juggling and a lot of hard work that goes into producing something like that. Um, it just didn't connect for me in the way that I can connect with a book. And it might also be because there are people doing the job in front of me and I'm watching them as opposed to thinking about what the language on the page means and where the story is and who I believe and who I trust on the page. (laughs) And there's so much more, I mean, there's so much more careful language and also interiority. You have access to everybody's interior, or at least an interiority in, in a novel or a short story. And you really don't have access to any interiority in screen narrative. I mean, you can guess it. You're really in the hands of the of the of the actors. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. to signal, and they're not even supposed to do that as as performers. They're supposed to just embody without signaling. Um, but at any rate, you don't have that. You don't have what you have in a, in prose narrative. I know. think too, we're in a interesting moment for criticism. 
And I mean, certainly this is something you've been doing for the New York Review since what, 99? I think that's right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So 99-ish. But you have this great way of thinking about criticism that you are coming to, less so with television, obviously, and much more with novels, but that you're coming as a practitioner, that you're not working out of theory, that you're not working out of, you know, a plan, as it were, which I love because you also, te- I mean, you've taught in MFA programs at Wisconsin and in now at Vanderbilt. And I just, I love this idea of you saying, well, no, actually, I just work through this thing and I'm going to sit down and then I'm going to tell you what I think. And it's not from, you know, you're not coming at it sideways. You're just saying, here we are. I want to talk. And I just want to use ordinary language. I don't yeah. want to use academic language. I don't mm-hmm. want to use professional language. I don't want I don't want any jargon to to be there. And I, I don't I mean I've avoided jargon my whole life anyway. So I, it's not even that I'm well versed in it and just not using it. I'm I, I just I just don't have access to it and don't want access to it. So yeah, as when I when I'm looking at fiction, I am looking at it as a practitioner and paying attention to the voice and the structure and all that. But I want to talk about it in ordinary ways. And when I'm looking at television or film, especially television, I have looked at it sort of as a Martian, you know, because I you not as a practitioner, as you say, but as someone who had a highly regulated childhood television. Um, we were not allowed to watch more than like an hour and a half a week and things like that. And the television was in the cellar and it wasn't even in the living room. So I have sort of come as a complete outsider to the television of now. I hope that's a useful thing to come as a sort of Martian and go, hey, Look at this. I mean, to some extent, the stranger's eye or the extraterrestrial eye is what all artists are doing. They're sort of saying, let me bring this sort of odd view and this unaccustomed view to what I'm watching or what I'm seeing, what I'm observing, as opposed to someone deep in the knowledge of of that thing um so you're coming in from the outside and presumably coming in from the outside you'll see things that people on the inside would not see i think what when one writes fiction one has to sort of start with what's inside one's heart and what's on one's mind um when one writes criticism one is really starting external externally to oneself but it it's having a conversation obviously with with things inside you but you don't you don't begin there necessarily you're you're you sort of begin more externally i mean obviously you're just going to keep doing the novels when you feel like them and the stories when you feel like doing them and the criticism when you know the spirit moves you as it were but have you thought about what's next i mean you, one of the things i do appreciate is we just get work from you when we get work from you and you know, it's kind of a delight. And it's like, oh, there's a new Lori Moore. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> she's still alive. Yeah. Or who is she? <laughs> I started something in Berlin. So okay. I will be working on that. And um, I owe the New York Review a review. I've owed it to them for a while. We'll see if I complete that. But there will be other things. I won't die. 
I won't That's die. That's okay. <laughs> Please don't. But more importantly, I mean, I liked. And even if I do die, guess my, what? I can come back. But I mean, also just piecing together what you'd been saying and then realizing that, you know, I am homeless if this is not my home was the book you were talking about. It's like, you know, eventually, eventually we can work backwards. That's kind of the fun. Because I think I said early on that I was I was doing a ghost story years ago. This is sort of my ghost story. And the next one of the next things that I will have will have some Berlin in it. Okay. Berlin is the most astonishing city historically of the 20th century, I think. Very tragic city, very complicated, and now very, you know, very interesting and alive, but but really processing so much history there. Reminded me a little bit of the South in terms of all the sort of tragic history that has to be processed there. I can see that. I'm I'm just gonna sit here quietly while you do your thing. <laughs> yeah, that is a novel I would very much like to. I'm that does feel more like a novel than stories. I don't know. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. The Berlin we'll Project. See. Okay. Let's see. I'm not gonna. I'm. We'll see. That, that, sorry. Sorry. Right. You don't like. I have to talk no about contracts that. right now, so I'm not contracted for anything. It doesn't have to be one thing or another. Okay. I'm gonna make the wheel in my head stop turning because now I'm. Because also I finished the new. It's 192 pages. Well, it's dense. I am homeless. It's a little, it's sometimes dense and sometimes the dialogue moves, is, moves it along quickly. And then, and then sometimes the writing gets compact and compressed. didn't feel like it was dense at all. I felt like it, it, it really felt like it flew for me and it flew not because I was reading a novel by you so much as I really was invested in, in puzzling out where we were going. That's what I, I just, I wanted to know where Finn and Lily and Max and Elizabeth were taking us. I was just like, what? And it was so satisfying. And that's the thing that I just, I really want to keep coming back to. And I know you and I were joking about beach reading before we started taping. And I'm the kind of person who takes Pear Pedersen's out stealing horses to the beach. So I know other people do not do that, but I would say, you know, the new one is totally perfect beach reading. Oh, good. It can be read anywhere. It can be read in your backyard. It can be read on the sofa. It can be read on the beach. It's just the language is really satisfying. The emotional journey is really satisfying. The characters, I mean, they're great. And yet I was kind of like, do I trust you? Where are you going with? I mean, Lily is a therapy clown. I'm just going to, I'm going to just let that hang out there. <laughs> Lily's a therapy clown. <laughs> She's not a very good one. She's no, but and she's, she's still a therapy. I guess I, I guess I, I guess I just sucked at it. She said, "Yeah, well, there's that." Yeah. Do you miss this world? Do you miss these characters? Do you miss this? I story? sort of do and sort of don't. Okay. I mean, you know, with the gate at the stairs, I missed Elsie yep. Kelchen for a whole year. After oh, wow. That. Okay, I can see I that. Did. I'm not going to, I'm not really going to miss Finn for a whole year. He's a different sort of character, yeah. but do I feel attached to him? Do I think about him? Sure. Yeah. And Lily, sure. And everybody else in there, sure. Maybe because they're a little older than Tassie Kelchin was in the Gate of the Bears. Um, I feel like the characters in this novel, their lives are already formed and made. Um, and again, at the stairs, there were still some questions as to what was going to happen to her. 
you know, who who would she be when she was 40? You, you don't really know. So I also don't want readers to lose sight of the fact that Finn and Lily do have a love story. It's a love story. It's supposed to be a love story. It's a little trippy. <laughs> well, love stories maybe test people's ideas of love a little bit and maybe test their credulity a little bit. It has a little bit of anger in it yeah. because of the issues that we, we mentioned before. But because we're trying, we're trying to talk around a lot of things without. We are. Without, it's supposed to be a love story, and mm-hmm. he uh, he loves her, and I think she loves him. I think um, she does. I think and she they, certainly they had a love of some sort at, for a while um, bef- prior to when the book begins. And they make reference to that, to when they met and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it is supposed to be a love story. It's supposed to be a ghost story. I am homeless. If this is not my home, it's supposed to sound like a blues song. Yeah. It does. <laughs> yes, ma'am, um, it does. <laughs> And it's about, you know, it's about not feeling quite at home in your in your own life, which none of these characters quite do. And that's the blues, you know, feeling mm-hmm. that you're not quite in the right place. It's so satisfying, this book. Well, it's so satisfying. You. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That seems like a really good place to wrap. As much as I would rather just keep hanging out with you, you have things to do. So... I Am Homeless, If This Is Not My Home, is out now. Lori Moore, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. We're back with another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to go along with the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Lori Moore. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble here in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hi, Madison. Where are you at? I am here at my home store in Los Angeles. So I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. I've been very excited for anything new by Lori Moore, and this is a wild, I guess, departure, but just a, a wild setup for her. But her writing style is something that I really cherish, and it made me think of something I read recently that... I really loved, and that is The Department of Speculations by Jenny Offill. Oh my God, this book. It is a novella, essentially, made up of phrases, thoughts, random facts, all building, essentially, the psyche and heart of a woman who is just this narrator that you don't really know where she lands until these small phrases start to build and build and build. And by the time you finish the book, you have a complete person. It's essentially the story of a woman who is reflecting on her life and marriage as it begins to unravel. The pure moments, the shameful choices, the longing and the regret. But it's the way that Afil crystallizes each sentence and each phrase for maximum effect. If you were to just glance at the book, it's essentially just sentences broken up that has a trajectory has a narrative flow but it's just done so well it's these quick thoughts it's these flashes of memory and this undercurrent of this mounting anger uh, and resentment that i think is probably deserved once you get to know this character it's a book that is best read quickly right up to the end and then retraced slowly and with care 
It's one of those books that you finish and you go, okay, let's do this again from a different angle. And it's funny. It's an intelligent wryness that I think can catch you off guard as you try to sift through these bits and bobs of feelings and thoughts that make the book up. There are these great surprises that can make you giggle. Uh, at least make an eyebrow raise. This is a book that has more honesty packed into it than a title that I've read in a long time. And it's one that I plan to revisit uh, many times over. And that is Department of Speculations by Jenny Offill. Madison, what do you have for us? Yes. Well, first, we love a book that you can come back to. That's always important. Never read the same book twice because it gives you something different every time. That was a weird way I said that, but... No, I love it. Fine. <laughs> when I was thinking of a book, I came to one that for like months now, I'm just keeping it. I was like, I'm reading this. I'm reading this. Like I just, I finally just gave in and read it because I had been walking around the store carrying it. And that was Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo. I love this book. I will say just a little bit of a trigger warning. It does deal with suicide. Just want to put that out there. So if that's something you do not want to read about, I would not pick this book up. It is an adult horror novel with a hint of dark academia, which I think is one of my favorite genres. So in this story, you have Andrew and Eddie, who are like two best friends. They were like so in sync, so compatible, so involved in each other's lives. And then within the span of six months, that kind of all disappears. So Eddie goes to Vanderbilt before Andrew. So he goes six months before and then days before Andrew is supposed to get there, Eddie dies in what is people believe a suicide. I, Andrew goes and needs to find what actually happened. And in doing so, uncovers, I think, an Eddie he never expected. And there's so many twists and turns within this novel that I think the writer does so, so well that just like keeps you reading. Like it's dubbed like a perfect summer read and it's not like your traditional beach read. It is a summer read and that the prose is so lyrical, the diverse casting, and it's done so well. And it addresses so many issues of like race, class, privilege, sexuality. It hits all those topics and doesn't make you feel overwhelmed by those topics. It really is just connected and interwoven in such a beautiful way while you're discovering these like this like secondary life Eddie had before Andrew even got there. So it's definitely a page turner. I think it has a lot of quirks. It has a lot of twists and turns. The writing, I think for me, is the best part because when you like pick up a book, it, it feels thick. It's one of those books that feels thick, but when you're reading it, like you're just flying through it. Like it could it could be the length of a novella. But like the writing pulls you in so much, like that's how it feels. You get through it so fast and then you're left with like, I think, wanting more from the story. And I think it's a step through this like horror genre that isn't like, you know, slasher or there is like an element of like spookiness, but it's definitely a horror that leaves you thinking, which sometimes psychological horror, that's the word I'm looking for. I love those. I, I love when an author can get into my head, which is why I chose Summer Suns by Lean Mandela, and I think it pairs really, really well. I like that pick. You're right. The book has a lyrical quality to it. It has like a highbrow horror was kind of how it was described to me. And I like the character work in this. I, I think that it's interesting to 
revisit somebody's life after they've gone and uncover things about yourself in the at the same time. So nice choice. But that's all we have for today. Wah, wah. But don't worry, we'll be back sometime soon. But thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.